save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Welcome into episode 58 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Thank you for finding us. We're on iTunes. Also, if you are an Android person, you can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, and we recommend our hosting app, Podbean, because you can find all of the podcasts in our network grouped together. That includes Miami Heat Beat, Three Yards Per Carry, our Miami Dolphin-centric podcast, Balls cast, which is hard to describe, except you have to be from Miami to really understand it, and you'll get a few laughs out of that every Friday. And also Pitch Invasion, which my co-host here, Chris Whittingham, has launched in advance of the World Cup, and that will be going every other day during the World Cup before it settles into a weekly schedule. Also, we've already announced two new podcasts in our network, Smark Your Territory on Professional Wrestling and The Fish Tank, hosted by Dolphins great O.J. McDuffie and Seth Levitt. Both of those will be launching in July with two others that we will have details on soon. All right, one of the things that we've tried to do here on the podcast is bring in guests who can bring a different perspective. We're really excited about this today, and especially on this day of all days, Amber Wilson, because this is the first day that you drove the morning show on 790 The Ticket. So you do, was it, three and a half hours of radio getting up at the break of dawn to get over to the 790 studios, and then you decide to sit in with us. What would possibly compel you to make that decision? (laughs) (laughs) To sit in with you or to get up at the break of dawn? Because getting up at the break of dawn is is less enjoyable than, than this right now. The worst part of hosting the morning show is getting up, that alarm going off at four in the morning. For sure. You would think you get used to it. I was told by other morning hosts that you never get used to it. And I'm starting to realize that I think that that might be the case. You never yeah, I, get used to those early never, mornings. Never, no, ever, ne- ever, ever. You never do. I, I did a year with Jeff DeForest and Leslie Visser over on 640. All I did every morning was get up, get there by about 530 in the morning. I know you have to get be there a little earlier because your show starts earlier than ours did. And then I would go directly to the vending machine to take out some Cheetos. That was my breakfast. <laughs> oh, my every, God. Every morning. I would, I would go to oh. get Cheetos and an iced tea, and I would snack on that during the first three hours of the program until we got out of there. And then I was covering the Dolphins at the time, so I would get out of that studio at 10 o'clock and drive to Davie to go to the Dolphins and cover their practices. It was it was not a fun year. I, I can say that. I, I can't I know even Chris imagine how a lot of healthy that is, though. I mean, like Amber, like from, from what I see on Instagram, like you're always eating healthy stuff. Like it's not Cheetos and, and iced tea in the morning. Yeah, but is I it feel not? like maybe that's where I'm messing up because you're right. My breakfast pretty much every morning is before I leave the house. I pour like this morning before I left the house in Tupperware, I poured a half a cup of raw oats a couple of scoops of protein powder and some blueberries into a container with coconut milk and ran out the door and then just ate that cold a couple hours into the show, which that is not nearly as motivating as maybe Cheetos would be. So maybe that's where I'm going wrong. <laughs> there's nothing exciting about eating 
that horrendous protein oatmeal. <laughs> no, and the, but the, the worst thing about the Cheetos was, so I would eat them and then, you know, I would be in a hurry to get to practice. And on occasion, no matter how you wash your hands, there's still going to be some Cheeto <laughs> dust, right? You can't get rid of it completely. And then I would be banging out a story after availability in Davy, and there would be Cheeto dust all over my computer from the morning. Oh, so yeah, not, not, uh, not great memories. I know Chris has done a bunch of those morning shifts there too. But just before we get to the bulk of this podcast, what was it like uh, driving? for the first time in the morning. It was a lot of fun. That's one thing that I really want to focus on this next year. So I've been at 790 now for two years. Now I'm finally on my second contract there. So what I kind of want this next phase to represent over the next year is getting more comfortable doing some things that I hadn't gotten to do before in radio. And, and that the biggest one being driving some shows. So I volunteered to work some shows on the weekend where I get to drive. Uh, so I'm doing that this Saturday. I'm driving a show with Zach Duarte and I was able to drive the morning show today because Zazzle was out and Tobin suggested to me, Hey, you've been here a couple of years now. So when Zazzle's out, why don't you ask if you could drive the show? Cause normally Tobin will step in and drive the show, but that's a lot for him. Cause then he does the midday show as well. So I was able to do that this morning and it was really fun. It was, it was fun being at the controls. It's not as hard as Zazzler makes it look. <laughs> he acts like it's brain surgery. It's not. No, it was a really good time. I had a lot of fun with the guys and, and it was Tobin and Romberg filling in today. And we just, I always have a lot of fun when, with those two, they're constant shenanigans. And it's always nice. It's always nice that you also get it on a day. That's one of those where you wake up in the morning, you see the big story. It's like, Oh, this will be an easy one because yeah. the, uh, the, the, the Brian Colangelo story coming out, it's like, all right, I don't have to come up with material today. Let's just talk about this. Which goodness this time of year. I mean, this is what, this right. is what we need, especially in Correct. South Florida. I mean, we're, we're, we're working off of nothing here. So any national story that breaks that's at least going to be interesting on a global scale and not just to, you know, whatever market that story's in. I mean, that story isn't just interesting to 76ers fans, but now is leading to all these burner accounts. This is burner gate now. So now all these burner accounts everywhere are being called into question and is so-and-so a burner account. And so this burner gate is giving radio hosts endless material, at least for a few days, which during this time of year, you desperately need. Yeah, and I can say for sure that some Heat executives have burner accounts. Um, there's no question in my mind. We, we all talk Whoa. about the, uh, well, we all talk about the PR two six two zero, right? Which is the Pat <laughs> Riley account, right. which we we identified a few years ago because it was following everybody that Pat Riley would possibly follow. And I don't know if Spolstra has one. He has his own account. He only tweeted from it once. But what people don't realize is his sister is actually a social media specialist. So I don't believe, based on some of the things that Eric knew were were happening on social media, that he's totally oblivious to what's going on on Twitter. And I can tell you without naming them that there. Or at least three heat executives that have burner accounts. Um, just based now, the, the, on the very important distinction to years. make is that they are not tweeting criticism about their players or other people in their front offices or other people that are in their front office, and they were not telegraphing trades a month before they happened. So right. I, 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 that is a major distinction to make. They're just using it as an anonymous vehicle to follow the people that they ought to be following on social media. We think so. We think so. We but think like, so. We think so. We think so. But there are 10 members of Miami Heat Beat, so I, and we, we haven't <laughs> seen all of them on video. So <laughs> it's very possible that a couple of them are actually Andy Ellisberg and Nick Harrison. I'm not, I'm not saying. You have no way of if, knowing. 
We have no way of knowing. I'll just say that our DM string is going to get a lot more closed up uh, if that's the case with some of the stories that we've been telling on there every night. So anyway, good topic there. Uh, I'm glad that you you had something that you could jump into because, yeah, Amber, I can tell you um, from driving. And I actually found, honestly, I don't know how, Chris, you feel about this. I found it easier to drive than be the second person. Really? Yeah, I did. I when uh, when Israel and I were doing the show together, and I was the second person, I struggled with that, like where to jump in, where not to jump in. And I know you were driving with Josh. Yep. And then yeah. when and then when Israel left, you and I were together, and I drove, and I actually found that to be easier than sort of being the person who reacts. I think it's I think it just depends. I am, I am an advocate person. of less work, and so I am totally <laughs> fine with, uh, with with playing off you. My mentality was just always like. Even when I was hosting, I was trying to build the show around the people I'm co-hosting with because, for me, their engagement is more important than my engagement. So regardless of the format in which that happens, I'm fine. Yeah, I actually, I think it's interesting you say that, Ethan, because I actually thought today I felt like I was fighting less to find my place. Like, it was coming more naturally because, obviously, I was coming off the top of the segment. I could just say something and then look at them and then allow Tobin or Romberg to jump in. And I can see why you would think that that's an easier role, actually, because even though you have more, quote unquote, responsibility in that you have things that you're supposed to be reading and you're supposed to come into a segment and you throw out the idea, really, you're throwing out the idea. And then the person in the next seat has to react to wherever you're going. And I can understand why the reaction actually may be more complicated than yeah. the person who throws out the idea. That's interesting. I, it, and it's true. I mean, I, I would say that sometimes reacting to things when it's not your idea and it's not where you want to go on the show or on a topic that you're not at all interested in and the main host is, sometimes that can be difficult. Yeah, I, I think it can be. And, and again, it depends also sort of, you know, how strong the personality you're working with is and, and sort of how that flow goes. But I thought driving, I was able to shape it a little bit more and, and kind of get a, a feel for it. And especially, I think, too, you know, you've got a three person booth in there in the morning. And I think when you're trying to engage two other people, and that's what Chris and I were trying to do, because we, we always had Chris Perkins or Mike Wallace or Alex Marvez as our third. And so Chris and I together would try to sort of involve them um, in some way. And and I found, I actually found the three-person shows to be easier than the two-person shows, which I was doing after Chris left, just because I we, we sort of were able to involve everybody's talents and, and get them to do stuff. But yeah, I, I'll be curious to see what you think after you do it for a little while, because clearly you're going to get more more opportunities to do it. And, uh, and that's a pretty cool thing. All right, I want to start here from the beginning with you, Amber, because I think people who don't know your story and don't understand what you were doing before you decided to get into sports radio uh, yeah. might be surprised that you decided to get into sports radio. I know, and we can get into some of your work at CBS, and I mean, my first interaction working with you was actually at SportsBang when you were doing uh, television there with Stu and with Goldie, and then I would fill in from time to time. But can you sort of give a little bit of backstory about how you fell in love with sports and why someone who had a successful career starting would decide to get into this crazy business? Well, you know, a lot of people think that I just walked into radio. I don't think a lot of people realize how long I was in sports before taking this job. And I was actually in sports before becoming a lawyer, which I'm also a lawyer, but I went into sports first. So really when I was like 12, I decided that I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And when I was in middle school, my brother was in college at the University of Florida. He majored in telecommunications journalism. He majored in broadcasting. 
and he was in school with Aaron Andrews and they hosted the news together at the station, the campus station. And she was doing sports. And I remember I went up there and my brother told me that this is Aaron. He introduced me to her and he told me privately, she, you know, she's probably really going to make it. This is a girl who wants to do sports. And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, there are women doing it. And obviously, of course, Leslie Visser and people like that had paved the way. But there still weren't a ton of women in the business at the time that Aaron Andrews was young. Then she went into the business and I kind of watched her career develop. And obviously, this influx of women come into the business. And by the time I got to college, I decided to major in the same thing that they had majored in and, and went after broadcasting out of college. Now, what I had also done though, was I had also taken the LSAT, which is the entrance exam for law school. I had taken that as well, right when I graduated, but I thought I'm going to chase this broadcasting dream first and maybe I'll go to law school later. I come from a long line of lawyers and I figured that was a career that I would enjoy as well. So I went into broadcasting and my first year was full-time interning at TV 20, which is the local news station in Gainesville. I interned for free in their sports department, like seven days a darn, a darn week. I'm sure anybody that you ask, and I know you guys had Stu Gatz on the podcast. And I listened to some of it and all of our stories, anybody in broadcasting who's had any sort of success, all of our stories involve a whole lot of climbing and clawing our way to any semblance of success. And that certainly was the case for me as well. And so I did this internship full time and I was waiting tables on the side and I graduated college. I stayed there for that year after. And that happened to be a very good year though, because that was during the time that the Gators went on their multi-championship run in college and basketball. And so I left after a year there and got my first job at CBS Sportsline and that happened to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I had never even, I mean, I didn't know a single person in Fort Lauderdale. I'm not sure I'd ever been to Fort Lauderdale, but that's where I got my first job. And so I moved down to Fort Lauderdale and I was their on-camera web host and mostly doing fantasy sports shows. And this was like mid 2000s. So this was really the very beginning of that. I mean, now it doesn't sound crazy, but at the time that was groundbreaking and there wasn't much of a web presence. And so people didn't get it. I spent a couple of years there and I went from three days a week to five days a week. So I went from part-time to full-time. I went through a couple of contracts. I, I went from getting paid nothing to getting paid very, very well for being, you know, 23, 24 years old. And things were were taken off from me from that perspective, but it wasn't television. It was web. And back then that was just strange for people. So when I would send out my resume reel to agents, or I would try to get jobs at TV stations, people didn't really understand that it was the same thing that I was doing the same thing. So I spent a couple of years there and this company open sports came along and recruited me away. And the reason that was desirable to me at the time was because they were offering to allow me to do more. So I was going to get a right for open sports. In addition to doing web shows, it was very similar format to cbssports.com, but I was going to get to do more stuff, do some producing. And I thought, okay, this will round out my resume a lot more. And then I'll be able to jump into TV from there. And I went to open sports and the economy crashed and everybody got laid off and open sports folded within a year. And it was a, it was a difficult time. And I was going on all these television auditions and so was these few other women in the business it was kind of we would show up at these auditions and it'd be kind of the same girls at every audition around the country and I was auditioning all over Philly New York all these places 
And I decided during that time, hey, maybe this is when I cash in on that LSAT and I go to law school and kind of get serious about my life. Like I've kind of chased the sports thing and it worked to a degree because I had definitely some years in my 20s where I really enjoyed living in Fort Lauderdale. I, I was enjoying my life very much and, you know, I was doing well for myself and I just wasn't reaching the level that maybe I'd hoped. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'll go to law school. Maybe that's a career that has a little bit more security involved in it. And I decided to go to law school. I, I was down here still. So I applied to Miami law because I couldn't imagine going back to a college town like Gainesville at that point. And I got into Miami law. And then of course, then I finally landed one of those auditions and I landed it at SNY network in New York to host a TV show for them that was called beer money. And I did that for a year that was in New York city. And I would just go around to bars and stadiums and I would ask people sports trivia questions and give them money if they got trivia questions right. So it was a really fun gig and they offered me a job off of that show, but it was a part-time job. And I thought, okay, am I going to be living in New York city permanently doing a part-time job? And I still have this Miami law acceptance that I had deferred. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to law school and finally do it, grow up, get my law degree, you know, maybe be a lawyer and started law school. And then what ended up happening was I ended up getting more TV work. I had done a television show for actually for CBS network. That was a few days out in Vegas. That was a baseball show. I had, I started getting work here and there. And at the same time was still getting my law degree. And then I got the call from Stu Gotts to audition for sports bang, which of course is, is how I met Ethan. So I did sports bang for three years throughout law school, still graduated my law degree, worked for the dolphins in their legal department during law school, worked for a sports and entertainment firm as well. Graduated law school, did that in two and a half years. It was a very busy period of my life and came out and, and I practiced full time at a firm and still did sports bang because it was only one day a week for a few hours. And, and I was able to kind of stay in both businesses. And then, of course, when I decided to fully get out and go full lawyer, I ended up getting the call that Joy was leaving and that I should audition for the 790 job. So that's that's kind of how it how it happened. Yeah, and I feel like, like you said, Amber, everyone who's gone through the industry has gone through some very... By the way, I just became the guy that I hate. I, I don't like it when we use either the industry or the business because we make it seem like we're in Hollywood and, and you know, it's right. it's Tom Hanks talking with George hey, in the industry. Like, no, we, we do radio. But, but either way, like, I, people who make their way through this that we do all take a very circuitous route to it. And that's like way circuitous even more than what I had to do. So I, I kind of find that element fascinating. But one of the things, though, that I do find interesting, I do think that the what it's like being a woman in sports media is a very kind of trite question now. But to me, the thing that is fascinating, that particularly in the Me Too age, how women who work in this industry kind of have to all be advocates for each other. Have you found that to be the case that when you took the job from Joy, did Joy reach out? And have you been sort of trying to mentor younger women and try and get more women involved? Because that certainly is an area that still, particularly in sports, we have huge steps to take. Yeah, but that's changed a lot over the last decade plus that I've been in this business. I mean, that that has changed, I would say, quite dramatically. Now, I would say there's a lot more support amongst women when I first got into this business. Back in the mid-2000s, I felt like it was a lot more catty than it is today. And I think part of that is just women realizing that we all do have a place here and that really 
our competition isn't just each other. We should be competing for the positions that men hold as well. And I think now we feel like we actually have that opportunity a lot more. People don't realize really how new women are in this business. I mean, this isn't, the sports industry is, is definitely not on par with a lot of other industries in terms of the entrance of women into the business. I mean, this is, has been a very slow progression. It's still very much a man's world, and that's in sports generally, and that carries over to the broadcasting side too. So I think what it used to feel like is there was only a few jobs that they would consider women for, and so I would show up to these auditions. It would be the same women, and so they would only be auditioning women and they would be auditioning for sort of the woman role. And the woman role on all these shows, and this drove me crazy in my 20s, which was a huge reason that I went to law school, is I kept getting all of these opportunities for roles that were very, in my opinion, very kind of the cupcake hosty role. It was the, the typical woman on the show was not actually the one allowed to give an opinion. And she was the one just sort of introducing topics or asking questions, or she was the one on the sidelines and that has changed some. I will say, now that I said that, if our listeners look around <laughs> and take note, they will still notice that a lot of the way that the shows are constructed and a lot of the opportunities in this business are still sort of women setting up the questions or introducing the whatever, and they're not actually the ones providing the analysis or providing what I would call sort of the meat of the conversation. But there are more women who have been allowed to do that of late. And that's definitely the direction that the business is going. I do think that back a decade ago, certainly two decades ago, there was just those cupcake roles. And, the, and so every woman was competing for the same role. And it was a lot more catty back then. And now I feel like women have realized, hey, we're not the enemy. And now we're a lot more willing to sort of help each other and stand on each other's shoulders and, and help climb our way up because we're all in the same position, which is great. Yeah, I want to expand on that a little bit here for part two. So let's get into the business a little more, because as you mentioned that, I'm thinking about what's happened in sports media. And just off the top of my head, you have Jamel Hill. You've got Katie Nolan, who I don't think ESPN uses quite enough. But and Michelle Beadle has been very outspoken on a lot of things. I know a lot of people in Miami don't love it because she's she was anti-Miami a lot during the big three era. But I mean, that's just off the top of my head. So it does seem like there's been more inclusion in that way, like you said, to sort of make women equal partners on these shows, as opposed to, as you said, just sort of setting up the guys to then to get then comment on things. Is there somebody that you watched, you know, a woman in the business who you thought, okay, that's sort of the way that I want to do this. Is there somebody that you tried to model yourself after? So it's an interesting question because I referenced earlier that one of the reasons that I decided to go into this business was watching the women who were doing it when I was young and then meeting Erin Andrews and watching her come up in the business and thinking, okay, when I, and this was, you know, when I was very young, when I'm in high school, I'm thinking that looks cool to be Erin Andrews and, and in college. And then I got into the business myself and I started learning a lot of stuff, of course, about myself. I mean, what your twenties, I mean, we're, we're all learning about ourselves in our twenties and, and learning what we really want and what you really want isn't always necessarily what you thought you wanted when you were young. And so my dream was always, okay, I'll, yeah, sure. I'll be the sideline girl. And then as I got older, I realized I'm an incredibly opinionated person and I'm a person who is very confident about my intellect and I want to be able to express that. And I was really not particularly happy in 
just the hosty role. And so for me, I was looking around for a woman that had the type of role that I knew I wanted in my mind and I could not find it 10 years ago. I mean, there really wasn't that many women who had the analytical role that, that I would have wanted. My preference, if I was in TV, sort of my dream, I suppose, although I don't know if I want to say that anymore, but you know, in television, if we're just talking television, which is where I started my career, if we take the show first take, for example, I found out that as I've gotten older, I don't want to be the woman, Molly Kiram, I believe, who does a wonderful job hosting that show. But I just realized with my personality, that role doesn't fit me as well. I would love to be Max Kellerman or Stephen A. Smith. You know, those roles fit me much better. And there are some women who have gotten to fill in on first take. I know Jamel Hill is one of them. But even with those sorts of shows, these embrace debate shows, which is the direction the sports media went for quite some time, there weren't women who were getting those roles. It was still very much female host, men actually delivering the opinion. And there are a few women now. I mean, obviously you have, you have women like Rachel Nichols, you have women who you have like Susie Colburn, you have women who do it in particular sports and have huge platforms and are very opinionated. And then you do have women on, on around the horn, which is great. And you, like you mentioned, Michelle Beadle has gotten to be much more opinionated throughout the roles throughout her career. And so all these women are are sort of getting that platform moving forward. But I wouldn't say there's still one particular woman that I look at and think she's got my dream job. I I don't know if that exists. And I like that it doesn't exist at this point because I'd like to create it myself. So now that you are in this opinion-giving role, uh, how would you say your opinions are molded? Are you reading all day? Are you, are you watching these debate shows? Because I think one of the things that perhaps listeners don't really understand is the work that goes into it. And yeah, you mentioned earlier how at times it's perhaps overstated how much work goes into us and it goes into it. And we make it sound at times like brain surgery because you want to make it seem like our jobs are actually difficult and not the dream jobs that everyone in our audience thinks them to be. But in terms of how you try to establish yourself as a different voice or someone who gives opinions that are perhaps contrary to those that are being given all the time, how do you actually go about on a day-to-day basis thinking through what you're going to say and being ready for three and a half hours of anything? I think before I became a lawyer, I thought sports broadcasting was a more difficult job than I do now. And only because I will say, I think being a lawyer is the hardest job in the world. I mean, being lawyers deal with so much stress because they're taking on other people's problems. And so I still practice on the side. And obviously I was practicing full time for a couple of years before I went back into broadcasting with a radio job. And so now having taken that time and, and practice and practicing on the side, I will say that in comparison, sports radio sometimes does feel like a piece of cake because at the end of the day, it's fun and we're not curing cancer. Really the preparation that's involved for me and preparing for the show is stuff that I was doing anyways, because I'm a sports radio junkie. And so I was listening to the Levitard show every day anyways, every chance I got. So that's a lot of what I was doing in my free time regardless. And that carries over to this job. Now I make sure I do it, you know, of course, and I definitely try to watch more games. The hardest part of hosting a morning show specifically 
is waking up at 4 a.m. and watching sports at night. <laughs> That's the hardest part because sports happen late. And people don't realize it's not just a normal morning show. I mean, you have to actually talk about what happened the night before. And that can be somewhat difficult. And so just even planning that out, planning the naps out accordingly, if there's a big heat game that night. And so that's what I try to do. I sort of just do what I was doing anyways and, and try to ingest as much sports as I possibly can. But there are times that, yeah, I might miss a day. And I'll just be honest. Hey, I'm not well read on that subject yet. Let me catch up. We talk about how you you know, didn't really see a woman that could be your model um, going forward. As you kind of carve out your job, what do you want it to be over the next 15 to 20 years? Are there younger women who have been reaching out to you, sort of asking you questions how to get into the business? Because I'll be honest about this, and Chris and I have talked about this, like we've started this network, right? And we're already at five pods. We're going to be at nine podcasts by the summer. We're very diverse, but we're really diverse with all men, right? We're we're actively looking you know, for women who can be part of our network because we think it's important to add that perspective. I guess the question is, are you finding now that you've sort of broken through in this market? Because I, we go back, we did a podcast with Stu about talk radio in this market. And when you start thinking about that, like there haven't been a lot of women who've broken through in South Florida. Like I'm just thinking no. of the of the two stations. I mean, you mentioned Joy, obviously. There's Joy um, and there's what, Anita Marks? Um, Allison Williams obviously has come out of this market and and done you know a lot of stuff, but she didn't do radio. She did right. more television. But I can't even think. I mean, I can think of people who've been producers or promotional or interns, but I can't really think of a lot of sort of young women who've come up through the business. And maybe that's the fault, honestly, of the radio stations down here too that they haven't cultivated that talent. But I'm just curious for you: Have women reached out to you and said, "Hey, how do I get in the business? How did you do this?" Yes. But I will say that most of the women who I run into, the young women, are trying to go into TV. And I do think when it comes to sports radio, I mean, sports radio is niche anyways, I think, for, for men and women. But men understand the reach of sports radio and I think sort of embrace the genre more. And women still visualize when they're trying to get into this business, hey, I need to be on television and think that television is where it's at. I mean, there's really not, you're, I mean, you're mentioning down here and yeah, maybe management could do a better job, but there's not many women nationally. I mean, the entire country, I mean, there are some women, I'm not the only one, but there's, I mean, there's nothing compared to the amount. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. On a men in the sports radio business. So it's just not thought of often. And I do think that, frankly, there is a sexism component there where men watch sports and men want to see women is this idea, which I don't even think is true because... 
men seem to have no problem listening to me. But I think that's the idea that a lot of people have. So they, they think, okay, woman need to put her on television. And then these, these young women think, okay, I need to be on television. And I do think women in this business, young women feel a lot more pressure to be attractive than men do. And that sort of plays into this whole idea of being seen. And the problem with being seen is sometimes you're seen and you're not heard. And that's how I felt a lot in the business. And that's why for me going into radio was such an opportunity. But even for me, when I decided to go on radio, I mean, my family was looking at me like, well, what are you doing? Like, there's not much prestige to radio. And a lot of people don't realize that you can, of course, have a very viable career in radio. And there's a lot of big names. And given they're all men, but they've made a lot of money in this business. And I, I hope that more young women go into it. I really do. I think that the reason that you're having a hard time finding young women who would want to contribute to your podcast is, frankly, it's just there aren't that many women who recognize when they're young in this business that recognize the importance of maybe putting that in their arsenal of skills and they could really be benefited by it. Because I will say that I, I think a woman on sports radio gets instant respect in a way that you don't get when you say you're on television in terms of knowing your stuff. Like if I tell people I'm a sports radio host, they think, man, she must know her stuff. Yeah, I think that's a big difference. And so we're going to put it out here again on this podcast. If you are a young woman who knows sports and is looking to get in the business, reach out to us at Five Reasons Sports because we're certainly looking for candidates. All right, let's move on to the next part here. Let's try to have a little bit of fun with this one. We talk about your role on the morning show. Give us a story about about your three primary people that you, you work with in there, which is Zaslow, Romberg, and Tobin. Oh, stories. Oh, goodness. Well, of course, the most of the stories would, would revolve around Romberg because Romberg is constant shenanigans. Romberg is the least professional of the crew, but he can. He has that, he has that, uh, that professional athlete uh, thing about him where he, uh, he's just so sort of lovable meathead guy that he plays the role so well that I always joke with him because he can get away with murder and we're always joking with him about it. Romberg would, you know, show up to the, to the show, uh, a little, uh, a little intoxicated from the night before. Still, there was, there was a couple of those shows, uh, rolling a little late. Uh, there was, there was a couple mornings where, uh, his hair was a little bit more than disheveled and he had clearly had a very extraordinarily rough night. And those are things that people who are not professional athletes would probably not attempt to do. But Romberg is Romberg, and it goes with his whole shtick. So it works for him. And so he's endless entertainment. I mean, my first, my first couple weeks on the show, Romberg was doing a weight loss competition with his friends. Now, Romberg is closer to his guy friends than any guy I've ever known. But again, I think it's that whole professional athlete thing. Athletes are really, really close to their guy friends because they have that sort of locker room camaraderie. And then it carries on into every aspect of their life. So it even carries on into retirement. So I think they have closer relationships with their male friends than just the average guy. So Romberg has these male friends who he, most of them are former UM players. And he's really, really close to them. And they were doing this weight loss competition and like two weeks on the show, he came in with his friends and they did a weigh in for the competition and they all got down to their underwear 
And when I'm talking underwear, I'm talking these guys were like naked <laughs> and in the studio. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I mean, I'm like two weeks in the show. My co-host is practically naked. I don't know where HR is, but it was, <laughs> it was extraordinarily ridiculous. I mean, we do these, these other events. I mean, there was this, uh, of course we have during football season, we have this, the, the, we, everyone has their own version of the, you know, wheel of death or the wheel of doom or the dartboard of doom or whatever. So of course we have one of those as well. And if you pick the, the games wrong and you lose, then you have to do some sort of humiliation. We call it a humiliation pool. And one of the humiliations one time was that they had to take a swim class at the JCC and it was Tobin and Romberg and Slim. And we got an instructor at the JCC. It was water aerobics. And so we figured that some nice old lady was going to teach it at the JCC. And the JCC set up to have their train, one of their trainers, who was this huge jacked guy named Rob, big Rob. And he was just huge jacked muscle guy. And he did this water aerobics class with these three guys and he murdered them. And I mean, I thought they were going to die. And they were getting out of school. They're doing push-ups. They're getting back. I mean, they were so out of shape compared to this dude and so, you know, dying. And Romberg has on a little brief. He has on a woman's bathing suit, but just the brief bottoms. And it was a woman's because he wanted to wear a UM bathing suit, but they only had a, a, women, a woman's one, apparently. So it was a bikini bottom, and that's what he was wearing. And that didn't go well. So um, we're just fortunate that HR for Entercom, which is the company that owns our station is, is located in some other States. So they're not always aware of Romberg shenanigans. So Romberg, we have stories for, for days. He's, he's by far the most unprofessional, but entertaining on the show. And he, I mean, he always shows up and he's always there and he's always ready to go. And he just provides endless entertainment. So I don't have any of those sorts of stories about Zaslow because Zaslow is 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 the more consummate professional sports radio guy who's who he's the one who's been doing it for 15 years so he sort of knows how to pick and choose when to uh participate in the shenanigans and when not to <laughs> with zaslow but with zaslow our thing with him is that we're always making fun of him because how zaslow dresses because zaslow's fashion taste is is not necessarily the best and so zaslow right now the reason zaslow's been out the reason i drove the show today is because he was at Boog Shambi's charity event in New York City. And every year Boog Shambi has this charity event and Zaslow goes and it's a gala. And Zaslow to this gala always dresses, leaves a lot to be desired in the fashion department. <laughs> so today, so yeah, so a couple of days ago, he told us that he was going to be out yesterday and today and he was going to the event and that he was going to go shopping. That this year he was going to go shopping. He was going to get a fly outfit so that we couldn't make fun of him on the radio. And then, of course, today we get a picture texted us to us all this morning that's a picture of Zaslow with Pablo Torre at the event. And Zaslow's wearing the same blazer. I swear it's the same blazer he's always worn. I don't, if he went out and shopped, then he bought the same blazer that's six sizes too big for him and clearly reminiscent of 1992. But it's the same blazer. But he, he bought a, a new shirt to go under it, but he bought a black turtleneck. It's like a faux turtleneck. So he's wearing like a gray blazer with a black turtleneck in New York, which I think Zaslow just thinks that New York City, because it's north, that it's automatically cold, I guess. But of course, it's the end of May. So it's 70 something degrees in New York. And he's in a turtleneck at this gala looking like a mafioso with the gray jacket and the black turtleneck. 
So that's Zazzler for you. And then Tobin is just a, a bleepster, as I like to call him. Tobin has the most ridiculous takes on planet Earth. And I swear he lays around at night thinking, what take can I have that is the most ridiculous take? And out of that, Tobin ends up doing things like eating crow on Sports Center and jumping around in kangaroo costumes and because he got in a fight with somebody in Australian parliament <laughs> and like all this ridiculous stuff. And it's because his takes are always pure insanity. And he's always thinking of these trades that would never happen in reality and trying to convince everyone they're happening. And that's Tobin's thing. And somehow Tobin has parlayed his insane takes into a larger platform because of course he got the midday show <laughs> as well and often fills in on the morning show and he's the only one of us who's ever been on sports center so tobin's made it somehow he won broadcaster of the year one year for you know slice or somebody and he's very proud of that and, and it's ridiculous because he's shenanigans so he's sort of like the stugats of the morning show and we want people to be able to listen to this podcast. I'm not going to ask you for a Slim story. We'll just move on from there and, uh, and, and allow allow Slim to entertain people on our Ballscast uh, pod, where if you have not listened to that yet, uh, you, you should, um, not with the children around, but should definitely check that out here every Friday. And now let's take a quick break. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heapy Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Carla Navas. And with us today was Michael Wallace of Grind City Media, formerly of ESPN and used to cover the heat. Michael shared all sorts of great stories with us from the time he called Gary Payne a liar to what actually happened to Rafer Alston in 2009 not to mention this incredible Udonis Haslam story so one of the funniest stories is that after he got married he tried to knock the faith uh, his wife their walk-off song when they walked away from the podium was Tupac and Snoop's two of America's most wanted ain't nothing but a gangster party that's how they walked off the stage from their wedding with that that's what <laughs> after they kissed the bride they started playing that one Check out all that and more on the Heat Beat Podcast now on the Five Reasons Podcast Network. All right, so let's move to some of your takes. You talked about how you're extraordinarily opinionated. So we're gonna try to do these rapid fire, Amber. Okay. So we're gonna we're okay. gonna pick we're gonna pick sort of the, the real hot button topics. You know, as you mentioned, you know, it's not a great time for South Florida sports in terms of where the teams stand, because it seems like everybody's pretty much the ninth seed or mediocre or somewhere around there. Um, and additionally, this is just not a real busy time of the schedule, but there's still things going on. So I'm gonna let you go here. What should the Heat do with Hassan Whiteside? Okay, so I'm the only person, I think, in South Florida sports media, maybe the media period, who has defended Hassan at all. And the reason I have isn't so much that I'm pro-Hassan. It's not that I think he's the answer to the Heat's problems, but Hassan, we know what Hassan is. And my opinion is that the Heat also know what Hassan is and who Hassan is. And they chose to sign a player for $100 million because he's a, and he's a great player and he's a great center. And they chose to sign him because they knew what value he did bring to them, despite the fact that he has what I would call, how do I say it? Like he has, he's got certain sensitivities. He is a, is a player who bounced around, of course, a lot in the league, had to play overseas, was playing basketball at the YMCA. And a lot of that wasn't because of athletic ability or ability at all. A lot of that seems like it might've been about mature immaturity and because of his emotional fortitude. And the Heat found a way to coddle Hassan and put Hassan in a position to be the best version of himself. Then it seems that they sort of forgot how to deal with him at some point. So the Heat became the team that they unlocked the key to Hassan and 
they found the perfect way to deal with him and to get the most out of him. And then this season stopped getting the most out of him. And it wasn't that he couldn't provide the most anymore. It was that they weren't treating him in the manner in which he apparently needed to be treated in order to give the heat what the heat needed. And I think a lot of that has to fall on the heat and the coaching staff, frankly, because we all know that Hassan needs that coddling. Hassan is going to get pouty about minutes. So if you're managing his minutes, maybe you keep him in the game to avoid the pout, even if he's maybe not working with your game plan as much. Or maybe you make the game plan so that he is more part of the game plan because, frankly, you do need him. You don't have enough weapons. And because Hassan needs that sort of emotional help. So I, it's not that I defend Hassan being uh, emotionally sensitive or needing that coddling, but it's just the reality is that he does need it. And that's what the Heat signed up for. And I think if that's what you signed up for and you paid the man $100 million, then you've got to keep continue to do that and continue to find a way to reach him. And we saw that really this was a result of his poutiness. And frankly, it was a season where he was injured as well. So it was a season where he was already, I think, going to be down on himself and, and already having a hard time with that. And then, of course, to be restricted and to be restricted so severely. And he was kept out of the fourth quarter of games sort of inexplicably at times. And by the way, why not just let him foul out instead of trying to bench him and then put him in this mood where then he's not even trying during the playoffs. He's not giving you anything. And it was just so obvious to me that he was just doing it all on purpose. And so everybody wants to get on Hassan, but I'm thinking, okay, but what did you need to do to get the most out of him? And I think that they had the answer to that and they had done it in the past. And frankly, I don't think it's that hard to know how to coddle Hassan because the fact is he just needs it and he needs to feel like he's important and he needs to feel like he's needed and he needs to feel like he's wanted. And so I think that when you have a player like him and you signed up for it and you paid him the big bucks, you got to find a way to make him feel those things. And then we got the Instagram story from Hassan, what, a week ago or two weeks ago? He's been really quiet on social media. But we got that Instagram story from Hassan where he's shooting jumpers in the gym and he says, it's not that I can't shoot a jumper, but that is that they won't let me. And I thought, man, that is so dead on what I have been saying. I mean, he is not, it's not that he can't play. It's not that he can't make a basket. It's not that he can't give you max effort. It's that he's not doing it on purpose. And he's not doing it on purpose because he's so disgruntled. And I think some of that has to fall on the staff for allowing him to get to a place where he's so disgruntled. All right, let's move now to the Dolphins, and it does feel like a bit like Groundhog Day with them where we're just constantly, every, every year we ask, is Ryan Tannehill good enough? But the last time we saw him, he was leading the team towards a playoff run and was one of the better quarterbacks in the league. Now, he's had two major injuries since, but do you feel like they can get him back to something like that form and allow him to maybe even make a run at a playoff spot. I think that's unlikely given the roster change around him, but they feel probably like they can challenge for the playoffs. Do you feel like they can? I mean, the initial reports about Tannehill is that he looks great in OTAs. So Dolphin fans, of course, can be very excited about that, but no one knows what we're going to get out of Tannehill at this point. Nobody really knows how durable Tannehill is if those injuries were just more of a lack of line in front of him and if, if his line is going to be better. I mean, all of that is is still up in the air. I think with Tannehill, what we do know we have is a quarterback who is okay. And that's really all you need if you have a really good team around a quarterback. I think that we learned that this past season. 
if you have a team who's maybe not so great, then sure, you need Tom Brady. If you have a team who's really, really, really good, then you can win with a quarterback who's, you know, good or okay. And that's what we have in Ryan Tannehill. So it's maybe an interesting strategy to Dolphin fans not to have drafted a quarterback during this draft. I didn't have a huge problem with them not doing that, frankly. I think that if they weren't, in fact, high on the guys at the top of the draft, we don't know what the truth is or not. But it seemed like from the reports that came out, there was one guy who they liked. And then the rest of those quarterbacks in that first round, they weren't very high on. And the one guy who they liked went with one of the top few picks and the asking price was too high to move up to be able to draft that person. If that is in fact the case, I don't have a huge problem with it because you knew you were going to get a huge upgrade at quarterback anyways this season. You didn't have to make a single move and you'd get a huge upgrade at quarterback because no matter what you think of Ryan Tannehill, he is a huge upgrade from Jay Cutler. So already the Dolphins have made a huge upgrade. And then you see how Ryan Tannehill pans out. And if you weren't particularly high on a bunch of the quarterbacks at the top of this draft, even if it was a good quote-unquote quarterback draft, then maybe you wait until you're in a drafting position where maybe you do find somebody who you are more high on if you need to in the future. But maybe you don't need to. Maybe Ryan Tannehill finally becomes a little better. I mean, he's not going to ever be great. He's not going to be Tom Brady. We know that at this point. He's not young. He's been in the league for a long time. But... I think he's good enough that maybe if you build around him that the Dolphins can do some sort of damage or at least build towards the future. I'm not that sad about the Ryan Tannehill aspect. I think that there's a lot of other question marks on this team because no matter what, it can't be as bad as last year at the quarterback position. All right. Speaking of things that are bad um, right now, it's uh, the Marlins, um, although not as bad as maybe we thought. And I, my question for you, uh, because this is another of the most polarizing topics in South Florida right now. Are you comfortable with Derek Jeter's plan for the franchise moving forward? I mean, do we really know what Derek Jeter's plan is? <laughs> Other than to break it up and then allegedly build it and break it down and build it back up. And, and we don't really have a timeline for that. I mean, in the next four or five years, he said, I, I think it's interesting that he, that he completely broke it down. And then we were at points in the season, this season where the Marlins were looking at the same record that they were when they had John Carlos Stanton and Christian Yelich and D Gordon and these other guys. It, it, that was interesting to me because I could see why you wouldn't want to spend the money. Spending the money on those guys obviously wasn't putting you in a winning position anyway. So I understand his thought process. It's hard when you're a Marlins fan and you feel like you had the pieces that all you needed was a few more, but I do understand that it is a business and that you do have to look at it from a business perspective. This is a business who had been, that had been completely mismanaged. I think anybody who was buying the team, it's not that I necessarily agree with the strategy, but any of these people in, in interested in buying the team seemed like they were going to blow the team up. But I know there was some questions about whether Jorge Moss was, and a lot of Marlins fans were saying, oh, Jorge Moss, he was the answer. He was so rich. And now there's been some questions about how rich really was he. And there, were, I felt like there was just a lot of assumptions being made when it came to the dealings of, of the Marlins and of the Loria Marlins and now of the Jeter Marlins. And I think at this point, we all just have to let it play out. I don't think that you can be too critical yet because he told you that this is going to be terrible initially and that he has a plan in the future. We don't know exactly what that plan is or how he's going to get there, or even if his ownership is really going to be willing to get there and start spending some money at some point when the team isn't necessarily making money and attendance isn't necessarily rising. Cause I don't see how attendance is going to rise until they start winning, but 
right now, I will give him somewhat of a benefit of a doubt. I do think everyone has been unbelievable. I think that there is a hangover of the Loria days when we're talking about Derek Jeter. And it's not that I think Jeter has made all the right moves, but I also don't think his moves have been as terrible or as unexpected anyways as everyone has acted like they are. And I think it's just because people are just so mad at the Marlins that it doesn't matter what the Marlins do. The Marlins have an offshore company that owns one one millionth of the team, which is a really, really common thing to do. And in when you're talking about these super large scale entities, then we act like it's some big controversy and people are flying down to the Cayman Islands or wherever that entity was acting like that was some sort of unusual event, when in fact it wasn't at all. So I, I'm, I'll go ahead and reserve judgment and just have to see where this takes us with this new ownership group. All right, let's get on to part five now here with Amber Wilson. Again, you can follow her at Amber W. 790 and also she works for as she mentioned she's a partner at Lindsay wilson plc what does that stand for amber that's uh that's the name of my that's my last name that my fiance's last name my last name plc it's just a personal life that's a law firm thing a personal liability corporation I, I was I was always supposed to go to law school. I never did. So I guess I should have uh, actually as we're setting up this corporation. Let's get to something that you dealt with personally here. Um, you still have the pinned tweet here on your Twitter account. Um, I heard the words that I. this is from uh, June 8th. 2017. I heard the words that I've been dreaming about hearing since I was told to have cancer on 11 16 My margins are clear. I'm cancer free. Um, you've talked a lot about what you want your career to be, how you envision it. During that period of time, uh, when you found out that you had cancer and during uh, those nine or so months um, that you were, or seven or so months that you were uh, fighting it off before you found out that your margins were clear, did you change at all what your goals were? And, and just could you speak a little bit to what you dealt with during that time? Sure. I, you know, when I, I, I first got diagnosed in November of 2016 and of course, that came as a complete, total and utter shock. I mean, Chris had mentioned how healthy I try to always be. And I always have been pretty extraordinarily healthy, I think. And really try to maintain myself, work out all the time. I used to even work as a personal trainer a million years ago. So I, I'm pretty tuned into fitness and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I've lived a pretty healthy lifestyle. So I, I just didn't expect to get cancer and certainly not to get cancer at 32. And that's what happened. But cancer can happen to anybody. And frankly, it doesn't matter how healthy you are. That helps and it helps you fight it. So it, that's not an endorsement to go eat Cheetos like Ethan does, but <laughs> in the mornings, but it, it is, a, you know, it's just a fact. Anybody can get cancer at any time in their lives. And so I was diagnosed in November, 2016. Like you mentioned, I was cancer free by June of 2017. My margins were clear and I had an, an, a, a, a really short battle compared to so many cancer patients and it was not easy. And I had a double mastectomy and reconstruction and then multiple other surgeries. And, and it, it was, it was not a good time of course at all, but it was, an easier path than a lot of young cancer patients because I learned a whole lot about cancer going through, of course, this experience. And what I learned was that cancer is a lot more deadly under 40 than it is over 40. And it's because when you're young, you're particularly with breast cancer, 
you're a lot less likely to catch it because you're just not expecting it. So a lot of young women don't catch it. You also are more likely to get more aggressive strains of cancer. They don't really know why. Maybe it's because you're more hormonal, because you are young and healthy, whatever it is. So it grows faster. It can be rampant, the type of strains that you have. And I was really, really fortunate in a lot of ways that I was in a position that I was able to catch it early and I was able to fight it quite easily and, and have my margins cleared within a pretty short period of time. So when I first got diagnosed, it was a total shock. I think my initial reaction was that I just wanted to move back to Sarasota where my parents are and just curl up in a ball and cry. I mean, I think your initial reaction is just always, you know, you need your family and you need to be around the people that you, who you love. And you're just, you know, you, you just want to go hide somewhere. And of course I didn't do that. And I ended up working as much as I could through my treatment. I of course missed a lot of time from the show, but I worked as much as I could. And when I did work, I found that that for me was actually a really nice break. When I was on air, I'm talking about sports. I'm not thinking about the fact that I have cancer. And that ended up being really helpful to me in my journey. I talked to a lot of cancer patients, a lot of young cancer patients who I count counsel. And that's one of the things I tell them like, Hey, if you feel good enough and you can work, do it because you'll find that it, it'll give you a mental break from what you're going through. And so I really, really appreciated sports in a way that I never had before. And I of course loved sports up to that point, but I really, really appreciated coming to work and just talking about sports and thinking about sports. And we all know at the end of the day, sports, it doesn't really matter. And that is the beauty of it is that it's not, no one is curing cancer when it comes to sports. And that's not what we're doing when we're talking about sports. And that's what makes it so great because there is so much bad in this world and there's so much serious stuff going on in people's lives and sports provides that escape to people. And so what I think it did was make me realize why people get so upset when we as sports commentators do get into some of these issues that we all think is, are incredibly important. And we're all very opinionated people. If you're in particularly sports radio or if you're a sports journalist. And so we are people who probably tend to also have opinions about politics and social issues. And we feel that we have a platform where maybe we can do some good in the world and maybe we can sort of share those opinions sometimes. But I understood when I had cancer, why people going through terrible things in their own lives, or even if they just hate their job or they're just whatever, they have a bad marriage, whatever they're going through and they turn on their radio or they turn on their TV and they just want to talk about that game last night because that's where they get their enjoyment from because it's not so serious. And then there's some discussion about something that even maybe they agree with, but it's just very serious. I sort of started to understand that perspective, which was interesting to me because of course I tend to sort of agree with some of these, the social commentary that we get with sports sometimes, of course. I, I think a lot of us who go into this industry feel a certain way about some social issues and maybe even some political issues. And I started to kind of see the other side of that and why people may not always want to, to hear about the heavy stuff and where they're coming from when they fight against you, when, when you go there. So that was interesting. I didn't really change my goals or my aspirations, but that was sort of the one thing that, that changed for me. I mean, my, my initial thought during that time was just sort of to survive. And then once I figured out that I, that I was going to, survive, knock on wood, hopefully have a, a very long life and hopefully stay cancer free. Then, you know, I, I, after that point, it wasn't so much about me or my future, but you know, it did shape my views in some ways. 
That's good stuff there. Um, and again, congratulations on your recent engagement. We saw those uh, photos on IG. It looks like your fiance did a pretty good job with that proposal. Um, I think a lot of us could have learned from that. Maybe Chris someday we'll learn from that uh, in terms of the way that he set that up. Again, you can follow her at Amber. W790. We could talk to you for three hours, but I'm really hungry for Cheetos. So I'm going to go <laughs> find some of those. I think I have some in the cabinet and then get them all over the computer as we post the episode. Um, hopefully uh, you guys will enjoy this. And, and Amber, you're welcome to come on anytime. And also you are welcome, as I said, uh, to suggest uh, any other women in the business who are uh, or are looking to get into the business because I, I, we, I got too many damn guys in this network at this point. It's ridiculous. Um, we need so. to get more women in this in this sports radio, sports talk business. It's got, it's, there, there needs to be more. There needs to be more female opinion on, on sports radio. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on podcasts uh, and on podcasts. Yeah, that's right. The five reasons sports podcast network. That's exactly right. Um, Amber, thanks for doing it. We appreciate it. And again, you can check her out on the morning show every day, Monday through Friday uh, with, with, uh, with Zaslow, with Romberg and also with Tobin and with slim. Thanks, Amber. Thanks. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.